If you're cultivating a personal practice with psychedelics or sit in plant medicine ceremonies, then I'm curious to know why. What called you to these medicines? And why do you continue to show up to do this inner work that is oftentimes, quite frankly, really challenging? If I had to guess, I would say that it's highly likely that at the very core of your why, which is essentially your intention, I would guess that you're showing up because in one way or another, you're desiring some kind of change to transpire in your life. Think about it for a moment. Is this accurate to say? Does this feel true for you? And if it does, what is that change or transformation that you're calling into your life? If you're choosing to walk this medicine path as a profound path of transformation, then this episode is for you. My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 48 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk about how psychedelics catalyze change and how you can leverage this understanding to more deeply align with and step into the life you truly want to be living. And how when it comes to changing habitual patterns, especially behavioral patterns, which we all know are hard to implement, let alone stick with, we're actually oftentimes focusing our attention on the wrong thing. And I'm going to offer you a shortcut to implementing meaningful and lasting change that is seldom talked about. This episode is part of a mini-series of solo episodes that I am so thrilled to be sharing with you to support you in the process of working with psychedelics more intentionally. Maybe we can even say more strategically to implement positive changes that actually take root within your being that helps you establish a new up-leveled baseline in all areas of your life and that ultimately support you in expanding what you believe is possible. Now, there are two free PDFs that accompany this episode that you can access at lauradawn.co forward slash 48. One of the free PDFs is a guide for integration, and the other one is going to outline the process that I'm going to walk you through at the end of this episode. Now, I'm also going to mention quite a few very helpful resources throughout this entire episode, which you can also access on this page, lauradawn.co forward slash 48, along with the full transcript if you prefer to read what I'm sharing, which actually helps to accelerate your learning. And so the process I'm going to share at the end of this episode and all of these helpful resources to support you in showing up to do your own inner work are also helpful if you're also supporting other people on the medicine path. Because as I often say, we can only guide people to the depth that we've gone ourselves. All right, before we dive in, just a reminder that all the content I share on this podcast and especially in this episode is for educational purposes only. Psychedelics are powerful substances that can actually be very destabilizing for some people to work with, and they certainly aren't for everyone. I'm not a medical doctor, and I recommend you consult with a mental health care practitioner or a doctor before engaging in mind-altering substances. And if you do choose to work with psychedelics, please be safe 
Use your discernment and get the support you need. I also have a free guide equipping you with 45 questions to vet your psychedelic guide or facilitator. And if you haven't yet accessed that, you can download it for free at lauradon.co forward slash downloads. Let's talk about change and briefly cover some of the common reasons people tend to seek out these medicines. And just take a moment to reflect on your why and your core intentions. Maybe you're calling in the healing of a relationship that has been causing a lot of pain and suffering in your life when it's out of alignment. Maybe you're ready to kick an unhealthy habit or interrupt a cycle of debilitating addiction. Or maybe you're praying for the heavy weight of depression to be lifted from your mind. Or maybe you're ready to let go of a limiting belief that's been holding you back from fully stepping into your life. And you can see the pattern of self-sabotage, but you haven't been able to overcome that pattern that keeps rearing its head up in your life. Maybe you want to heal your relationship to food or to your body and start treating your body better because the way you've been treating yourself is causing self-harm and suffering. Or maybe you need a deep reset around what you're prioritizing in your life and how you're spending your time. And or maybe you want to feel more motivated and inspired. Or maybe you're calling in support, strength, and courage through a time of letting go and transition. These are all ways we are calling in change in our lives and so many more. And as we all know, sticking with change can be hard to implement. Otherwise, we'd all just be jumping to it, whatever that it is for you. You know, it's one thing to think about quitting smoking, eating healthier, changing a thought pattern, hitting the gym at 6 a.m. every morning. And it's another thing entirely to cultivate that as a daily habit. And oftentimes, the profound wisdom of these plant teachers do offer us clarity and insight, amplifying our self-awareness, which can help us reorient towards what we really care about in our lives. And as I often say, our plant teachers can illuminate the path before our feet, but they can't make you walk it. They might inspire you to show up in a new way, but they can't make you take that action. At the end of the day, that is all on you. And as this quote by Roger Walsh illuminates that you may have heard before, he says, the universal challenge is to transform peak experiences into plateau experiences, epiphanies into personality, states into stages, and altered states into altered traits. And so the essential question here is how do we translate the wisdom we receive from our plant teachers into the fabric of our everyday lives? How do we get more intentional about the work we do with psychedelics or sacred plant medicines to catalyze meaningful change that's in alignment with the life we want to be living, with the life we want to intentionally create for ourselves, which is essentially what plant medicine integration is all about. And maybe we don't need another ceremony. Maybe we just need to show up and do the work and make a new choice in those very real nitty gritty moments of our everyday lives. That being said, psychedelics can enhance our capacity to make that new choice or that better choice. 
So let's take a moment to talk about how psychedelics and sacred plant medicines play a supportive role and how they help a lending hand in our path of growth and transformation. So according to Dr. Robin Cart Harris, a pioneer in the field of psychedelic neuroscience, he explains that psychedelics are catalysts for change. So the word catalyst is defined as a cause to begin or an accelerator. It's what I just explained as psychedelics being able to illuminate the path, but we have to take action to actually walk it. Now, I did an episode with Day Schuldkret. It was episode number 44, all about the power of ritual. I loved this conversation. And Day calls himself a word nerd. And he's been really inspiring me to look up the root meaning of words. And I found it so fascinating that the word catalyst comes from the word disillusion or dissolving. And that right there makes me think of the process of entering the cocoon of metamorphosis, right? When the caterpillar literally dissolves to become something else, which is what journeying with these medicines often feels like. That sometimes we need to let go of something and let something dissolve to step into a new, more aligned version and vision of ourselves. And so Dr. Carhart Harris also talks about how when we take psychedelics, there is an overall enhanced effect of plasticity and describes plasticity as essentially the capacity for change, the ability to be molded. And Michael Pollan writes about this in his book, How to Change Your Mind, and I'll read an excerpt from that book to set the stage here. He says, the myriad new connections that spring up in the brain during the psychedelic experience, as mapped by the neuroimaging done at Imperial College, and the disintegration of well-traveled old connections may serve simply to, quote-unquote, shake the snow globe, in Robin Cart Harris's phrase, a predicate for establishing new pathways. Mendel Kalin, a Dutch postdoc in the Imperial Lab, proposes a more extended snow metaphor. He says, think of the brain as a hill covered in snow and thoughts as sleds gliding down that hill. As one sled after another goes down the hill, a small number of main trails will appear in the snow. And every time a new sled goes down, it will be drawn into the pre-existing trails, almost like a magnet. Those main trails represent the most well-traveled neural connections in your brain, many of them passing through the default mode network. In time, it becomes more and more difficult to glide down the hill on any other path or in a different direction. Think of psychedelics as temporarily flattening the snow. The deeply worn trails disappear, and suddenly the sled can go in other directions, exploring new landscapes and literally creating new pathways. When the snow is freshest, the mind is most impressionable, and the slightest nudge, whether from a song or an intention, or a therapist's suggestion can powerfully influence its future course. Then he goes on to write, The therapeutic value of psychedelics, in Carhart Harris's view, lies in their ability to temporarily elevate entropy in the inflexible brain, jolting the system out of its default patterns. 
And these default patterns that we're talking about here are deeply entrenched habitual patterns, behavioral patterns, and also thought patterns, patterns of both mind and body. So at the same time that psychedelics are catalysts for change, they are also pattern disruptors, which is really helpful to initiate change, right? Shaking the snow globe, there's a fresh blanket of snow, so it becomes easier to choose a new thought, to make a new choice. And that's the essence of it. So we know there are these windows of heightened mental flexibility, that open up for us after the psychedelic experience where we're a little more malleable, a little more shapeable. So the key takeaway here is that we want to take advantage of these windows post-psychedelic journey, which is really the theory behind psychedelic-assisted therapy. But we can also leverage that time to catalyze intentional change on our own. And I'm not going to say don't go to therapy. Some people absolutely need therapy. But there is a large portion of the population who are working with psychedelics who don't necessarily need therapy or maybe who can't afford it, who can still benefit from doing their own integration work. Okay, so if you want meaningful change to transpire, this essentially means that it's also helpful if you have clarity around the kind of change you're looking to catalyze in your life, right? That makes sense. As a wise person once said, when you know your why, you know your way, which is essentially why there's so much emphasis put on setting intentions before psychedelic journeys or plant medicine ceremonies, which of course change and evolve over time as we evolve and deepen on our path. So it's worth highlighting that intention requires the cultivation of clarity, and the cultivation of clarity is a practice. Cultivating clarity is a daily habit of peak performers, which is something I speak to at great length in my mastermind programs, and we'll talk more about this in subsequent episodes in this mini-series. But essentially, it's not something you do once. It's a daily practice. If you're not clear on what you want your life to look like, how are you going to create it? And shaping our lives is a daily process, right? And we can bring more intentionality to that process to consciously shape it in the direction of our choosing. Okay, so here's the crux of it and one of the key takeaways of this episode. Are you ready? Oftentimes, when we look at catalyzing change in our lives, we look at behavioral change and focus on changing habits quitting old habits or adopting new habits, which is the outcome of what we want. But this will only get you so far and likely not as far as you'd probably like to go. If you want to achieve long-term foundational change in your life, I encourage you to stop solely focusing on the specific habits you want to change, although it is absolutely helpful to be clear on what those are as well, but I encourage you to start focusing on consciously shifting and shaping your identity, which is your sense of self and how you make sense of yourself in the world. And it's also known as your self-concept in psychology. In his book, Atomic Habits, New York Times bestselling author James Clear talks about the importance of identity-driven change versus behavior-driven change. 
Atomic Habits is such a great book. I think I've read it like three or four times at this point. I highly recommend reading it if you haven't yet. And I'll link to that book in the show notes. In his book, James Clear says, true behavior change is identity change. You might start a habit because of motivation, but the only reason you'll stick with one is that it becomes part of your identity. Now, this is essentially the exact same thing that many spiritual traditions and teachers have spoken to throughout the generations. One of those teachers being Byron Katie, who's been a major inspiration in my own life. And she said, change your story, change your life. Because that's essentially what your identity is. It's an internal story or narrative you tell yourself about who you are and your identity is tightly woven together by your beliefs and everything you believe to be true. Your self-concept is essentially a collection of beliefs you hold about yourself within the context of the story you tell yourself about the world around you. And I like to think of beliefs as hidden contracts that we have with life, a contract that we signed a very long time ago and have completely forgotten about. But yet this contract still dictates the outcomes of our lives. Now, the thing is, you started adopting this internal narrative about who you are at a very young age, and you've repeated this story to yourself so many times that you just believe the story to be true. And so it's kind of like being a fish in water your whole entire life. You've been immersed in it for so long, you just don't know any other way. So you just take it at face value, right? It's outside of your conscious awareness. And this story has become deeply embedded in your subconscious and your identity, the story you tell yourself about who you are, has this cascading effect influencing everything else in your life, including your perception of reality. It influences the thoughts you think and the words that you choose and the behaviors and the actions you take. This internal narrative influences your mindset, how you approach challenges, how you transition through change. It influences what you believe you're capable of, how deserving you feel like you are, all the way down to your self-worth. And from what I've witnessed over two decades of working with these medicines, the core of so many people's struggle and suffering comes down to people telling themselves a narrative that is rooted in unworthiness, a story of not good enough or some version of that story, which manifests itself in so many different ways for different people. So when we talk about catalyzing change and transformation in our lives, if we only focus on behavioral change, it's like addressing the symptom rather than the cause. And I like how James Clear puts it so succinctly. He says, changing our habits is challenging for two reasons. We try to change the wrong thing and we try to change our habits in the wrong way which essentially he's talking about changing from the inside out versus the outside in. He has this three-circle approach. At the core of the center of the circle is our identity. And then there are processes, and then there are outcomes, the outcomes of the processes and the systems of change that we implement. And the outcomes, the outer circle, are our behavioral habits that change. 
Trying to change through focusing on behavioral habits only is like trying to change from the outside in. So when it comes to implementing change, most people are focusing in the wrong direction. They try to change the behavior first rather than consciously changing their core identity, which includes crafting a new narrative around our sense of self. So again, this is emphasizing identity-driven change versus behavior-driven change. And the key to building lasting habits is focusing on molding a new identity first. Your current behaviors are simply a reflection of the story you tell yourself about who you are. And when we focus on shifting or rewriting our internal narratives that make up our self-identity of who we want to become, then behavioral change becomes a byproduct because we like to stay congruent and coherent with the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. So if you want to quit smoking and someone offers you a cigarette, there's a difference between someone who says, I'm trying to quit versus someone who says, I'm not a smoker. If you want to start running as a daily habit, focus on the narrative that you are a runner. See the difference? We don't like to act out of alignment with who we think we are. Change your personal narrative and you'll support your behavioral changes. Change your story, change your life. Okay, so I want to build on this by adding one more layer here. So we're going to circle back around to psychedelic research one more time to really deepen our understanding. So we talked about how psychedelics are pattern disruptors and offer us these windows of heightened mental flexibility where we're a little bit more malleable post-psychedelic journey and we want to take advantage of those windows where we can be a little more intentional in our process of integration to shape and mold ourselves in a direction of our choosing. And they offer us these windows of heightened mental flexibility because essentially they influence our quote-unquote models of reality. Because when we ingest hallucinogens, there are neurochemical changes that take place in the brain that influence these models. Okay, so here's a little psychedelic science for you. Psychedelics are called serotonergic because these molecules are similar in structure to serotonin. As a result, they act as agonists, following similar pathways, primarily at the level of the 5-HT2A receptor, which the majority of these receptors are found in the neocortex. Now, I'm going to simplify here, but I'm going to add a complimentary link to a very helpful YouTube video created by my friend who's a psychedelic neuroscientist named Manesh Gurn, and it can be found on his channel, The Psychedelic Scientist. And he goes into a video explaining the default mode network and how we are vastly oversimplifying it, and he sort of elaborates on the dangers of this. So that being said, I'm still going to simplify this process. And essentially, it seems that due to the flooding of the 5-HT2A receptors, psychedelics knock a very important network called the default mode network offline. 
The default mode network is considered to be somewhat like the neurological correlate to our sense of self, referred to as the me network. And Michael Pollan also talks about the default mode network in How to Change Your Mind. And he explains that this is part of the brain that lights up when you get likes on social media, when you're thinking about your past or future, or when you're engaged in self-referential processing or wondering what other people might think about you. This is called the default mode because it's where your mind wanders to when you're not doing or focusing on anything in particular. Okay, so there are seven main networks in the brain that shape our models of reality, and the default mode network is like a boss that sits at the top of the hierarchical brain. So the model of reality that sits at the top is the story of me, the model of self and self-identity, the story we tell ourselves about who we are and who we are within the context of the world that we're living in. And this network, the default mode network, directs and suppresses the flow of information in order to maintain a cohesive storyline about reality. And so essentially what psychedelics do is they flatten the hierarchy of these seven networks in the brain. And there's another really well-written article that speaks to this whole concept of models of reality that was published in Aeon. And I'll also add that to the show notes, and it's definitely worth the read if you're interested in learning more about this and how the brain works and how psychedelics influence the brain. And it's called Model Hallucinations. Psychedelics have a remarkable capacity to violate our ideas about ourselves. Is that why they make people better? So that's the name of the article. Again, I'll include it in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. Totally worth the read. So because the default mode network gets quote unquote knocked offline during psychedelic journeys, what happens is that our models of reality, including our models of self, essentially the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are as well as the world around us become violated and the integrity of that story begins to degrade. As author Merlin Sheldrake writes in Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures, he says, one of the most robust mental models is that of the self. It is exactly this sense of self that psilocybin and other psychedelics seem to disrupt. And so it's through this process that we might start to question, maybe I'm not this person, or maybe this identity that I've been clinging to and defending for so long is just not in alignment with who I want to become or who I want to be anymore. And this is the primary reason that psychedelics can be so transformative. They help us to degrade in a very helpful way our sense of self, which means we become less sure about who we thought we were, opening up a window of self-inquiry around who we might want to become. So the process that I'm going to share with you in the last part of this episode is a helpful anchor so that we can orient ourselves and move through that cocoon of metamorphosis with intention. Because sometimes when we have these psychedelic experiences of ego disillusion, it can actually be very disorienting. So having these helpful tools as we move through these portals of 
transformation are like bridges from old self to new self. And in a way, going through a psychedelic experience is like putting on a new pair of perceptual glasses with a different colored tint that supports a different way of looking at yourself and the world around you. And even if putting on this lens might be temporary, let's say six or eight hours, maybe 10 hours, sometimes once we see something in a new light from a new perspective, it's hard to unsee it. We also know that psychedelics can offer us a mystical experience of self-transcendence, a literal moving beyond the self. As Michael Pollan writes, in the words of Matthew Johnson and psychiatrist and researcher at Johns Hopkins, he says psychedelics like psilocybin dope slap people out of their story. I love that. Dope slap people out of their story. It's literally a reboot of the system. And that's according to Matthew Johnson. That points again to psychedelics as pattern disruptors, and at the highest level, they're disrupting our models of reality and especially our models of self, self-identity. Now, I'm also going to share with you a clip from a conversation I had with psychedelic neuroscientist Manesh Gurn, whom I just referenced earlier, who I also interviewed all the way back for episode number five, titled, This is Your Brain on Psychedelics. That is a very helpful episode to listen to, especially to complement this one. But this particular clip is from an unreleased conversation that I had with Manesh, where I asked him the question, how do psychedelics help to catalyze change? And if you listen for it in his response, Manesh directly speaks to these models of reality. I think a good entry point is to ask, what's making us stable in the first place? Why is it so hard to change? You know, why do humans have this tendency to get stuck in patterns, which are then hard to escape from. And I think one perspective on that is thinking about how the brain works. And um, what the brain is constantly trying to do is it's trying to create models of the world to give us a sense of stability and certainty to then allow us to interact in a very useful way. Because the world in itself is extremely complex. It's far beyond our comprehension. So many factors at play all the time interacting and we really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or even in the next moment. It's very inherently unpredictable. Um, but the brain tries its best to try to create order within that. And so as we're growing up and our brain is developing, um, we're trying to get our bearings in the world and trying to give ourselves a sense of certainty. And what that often involves is taking on beliefs, taking on beliefs about how the world is, how the world works, and who we are, how other people are, et cetera. And um, especially when we're young, when we're just coming into this world, everything is so new, everything's so mysterious and uncertain. And in the long run, that is not conducive, unfortunately, to a feeling of being grounded in yourself and of being able to find your way in life. Because if everything is chaotic and unknown constantly, you can never get grounded in your kind of in an anxious state all the time. And so we need to have stability for that reason. And the brain, you know, will take from the information that's coming through our experiences and create these models. And so these models might be, you know, the world is a safe place. I can explore and pursue my curiosity and I'll be fine in doing so. Or it can be uh, the belief that the world is a terrible place. People are not trustable. People, you know, uh, often do things which we don't expect them to do, uh, et cetera. And so our beliefs about the world, which are really molded in our early life, um, can really color how we experience things. 
And um, on one side, as I just said, it can be very positive and give us a positive way of living our lives in a healthy and wholesome manner. But more often than not, we don't have perfect upbringings. There's all sorts of things that impact us as kids, uh, which we later have to work through as adults. But these things also lead us down negative rabbit holes and maybe you know, give rise to mental illnesses later on in life. And so having the stability is a double-edged sword, right? Like we need it to be able to understand uh, and operate in our world in a certain way, but it can also get us stuck in things that aren't serving us. Um, so what psychedelics do, one way of understanding what they do is how they, is that they, by activating certain receptors in the brain, put us in this state of consciousness where our beliefs about the world, about ourselves, about other people, or no longer as certain. They're kind of made more flexible and malleable again, almost as if we're all, like back to childhood. And there's some neuroscience suggesting that the brain is interconnecting in ways that might be more similar to childhood than adulthood as well. So we have this more childlike, open, unconstrained mode of consciousness where then we can see things in a new light and escape those habitual beliefs and patterns. Okay. So when we hear the word models of reality, we can sort of think of that as synonymous with our belief systems. Is that right? Yes, very much. It's the, yeah, when I say models, you could say beliefs, assumptions, um, et cetera. It's our way of um, deriving meaning from the world and giving us a sense of that we know what it's like or what it, we know what's happening. Okay, so all that being said, if we're offered a reboot, as Matthew Johnson calls it, we might be wise to reset in a way that's in conscious alignment with who we want to become and the life that we truly want to be living. So how do we do that? We're going to focus on a process that emphasizes identity-driven change versus behavior-driven change, drawing upon the work of James Clear. This is a simple process, but it does require showing up to engage in it. So often we learn about the tools, but we don't always use them or implement them. And so this is a version of one of the tools I draw upon in the work I do when I'm supporting leaders and entrepreneurs, peak performers and executives in their own plant medicine integration process. So this is an eight question process. And I wrote these questions out in a free PDF that you can download if you want to go to lauradon.co forward slash 48. For the first part of this process, I invite you to write down your core intentions for why you are choosing to walk this medicine path. Why are you choosing to go to the next ceremony or whatever psychedelic container you are choosing to show up for? And in this process of asking why, keep peeling back the layers, one layer at a time, asking why one more time until you can't go any further and you arrive at your core why. And then from there, the second question is, what is the core change or the core changes I'm calling into my life? And there's something really important I want to say about this question. Root your intention or desire for change in self-love and self-compassion rather than a desire to get from A to B because you don't like who you are at point A. Transformation, like real lasting foundational transformation, comes as a result of loving ourselves through the portal of metamorphosis. 
guilting and shaming yourself through change actually prevents you from passing through that portal and can become a form of self-sabotage. Chogim Trumpa Rinpoche used to say that awakening is inherently a path of befriending ourselves, which is incredibly profound to contemplate. I think about this all the time. Awakening is inherently a path of befriending ourselves. So let's love ourselves through this transition. So we get clear on what is the core change or the core changes we're calling into our lives and how do we support that process with self-love and self-compassion? Okay, so the third question is, who is the person I am becoming? Who am I intending to become? And I'm curious to know, when was the last time you asked yourself this question? And if you do ask yourself this question, how often do you reflect on it? This question framed in this particular way, who am I becoming and who am I intending to become is so powerful to weave into your daily practice of self-reflection because you're implementing a current self-narrative around becoming. That is super powerful to weave into your daily practice of self-reflection because you're implementing a current self-narrative around shaping who you are becoming, which in turn influences the process. So remember I said that cultivating clarity is a daily habit of peak performers? Well, if you make asking yourself this question a daily practice, you'll bring more intentionality into shaping the person you are becoming. Because so much of our present moment experience is shaped by our past. And if you want to really understand this concept, just tune into Joe Dispenza's work. You can start with reading Becoming Supernatural. That's a really good foundational place to start. But essentially asking this question is anchoring yourself into a future vision of who you are becoming, right? It's more forward thinking. So when you're writing, frame it in terms of the present moment. This is how we create a bridge between our future selves of who we are becoming and anchoring it into the embodiment of it right here and right now. So imagine yourself in a year from now. What is the story you are telling yourself about who you are? And the reason I started this process with the first two questions is to create a story or a narrative around who you are as the person who is embodying the changes you wish to see take root in your life. So let's use an example. Let's say you're experiencing challenges in your marriage or a relationship you value, and you're receiving a reflection that you're unkind. And you're coming to this medicine to heal that relationship because when it's out of alignment and there's disharmony between you and this other person, it's causing both of you a lot of suffering. And let's say in the ceremony, your perceptual lens gets dusted off and you start to see more clearly all the subtle ways that you are actually being unkind. So in this writing exercise of who you are becoming, you write out a vision of your future written in the present tense of what it means to identify as a kind person. You want to self-identify as a kind and caring person and be able to embody that identity so that that's also what's getting reflected back to you. 
Okay, so as you're exploring this third question of who am I becoming, try to get as detailed as possible. Go as deep as you can. And now the fourth question, we're going to keep building on this process, is to ask yourself, what is one new belief I need to adopt to become this kinder person? To identify as a kind person, what's one new belief I need to adopt about myself? And maybe this inquiry leads you to uncover something that's been outside of your field of awareness. And you realize that one of your core beliefs, one of the stories that you were taught as a child is that the world is an unkind place, which is not an uncommon storyline to be taught to children these days. So maybe that uncovers like a very core root belief that is then influencing your thoughts and your perceptions and your actions and behaviors. Okay, following the process, the next question is, as a kind person, how would I think? So if I embody this identity of being a kind person, what are new thoughts I would need to think to identify as that person? And then the fifth question following this sequence is to ask yourself, as a kind person, if that's the example we're working with here, how would I think? What are new thoughts I would need to think to identify as a kind person? And then the sixth question is, what new words would I use? And how would I speak differently if I was to fully embody the identity of a kind person? Remember that words shape our reality and have a huge, huge influence on our self-concept and identity. So actually write out sentences and words that you think you would start adopting if you were to embody the self-concept, the identity of a kinder, caring person. And then the seventh question is to ask yourself, how do kind people behave? What are new habits and behaviors I would need to establish as a kind person? What new actions would I take on a daily basis? So this is truly creating change from the inside out. And then the final question, the eighth question as part of this process, is asking yourself, why does this matter to me? And this is where we align vision with values. And these do need to be in alignment for that change to get rooted. So again, why is this important to me? What do I truly care about? And why do I value that in my life? And how is this change that I'm seeking to implement in my life, how is that in alignment with what I value and what I care about? All right, so just to briefly summarize all eight questions. Number one, core intentions for why you are choosing to walk this medicine path. Peel the layers back until you get to your core why. Question two, what is the core change or the core changes you're calling into your life right now? Number three, who is the person I am becoming? Who am I intending to become? Number four, what is one new belief I need to adopt to become this person? Number five, what are new thoughts I would need to think to identify as this kind of person? Number six, what new words would I start using? Number seven, what are new habits and behaviors I would need to establish to fully embody this identity, this narrative, this story of who I am becoming? Number eight, why does this matter to me? 
what do I truly care about and what do I value in my life? And how is this change in alignment with those values? Okay, so I don't just recommend thinking about this process. I encourage you to actually write it out, ideally by hand in a journal, or you can print out the pages I created for you in that free PDF by going to lauradon.com forward slash 48. And I encourage you to try writing out as much as you can. So when you feel like stopping, like when you feel like you've arrived at sort of the the end of your paragraph, try going a little further. Try writing one more paragraph beyond that. And see if you can strike a balance between intention and surrender in this writing process, stepping out of your own way while still engaging your intentions. I find a good window for doing these kinds of practices is first thing in the morning where my brain still has one foot in the dream realms. And I suggest committing to this process for at least 14 mornings in a row because you would be amazed at how this process changes and evolves even over the course of two weeks. And again, right, doing this as a daily practice is actually how you cultivate clarity in your life. Now, one thing I really want to emphasize here is that when it comes to change, slow and steady wins the race. As James Clear talks about in his book, consistently implementing just 1% change really adds up over time. So you don't want to try to do too much all at once. It's just too drastic, and that can be destabilizing. So we keep our internal narratives consistent for a reason, right? As Manesh Gurn mentioned in that clip that I played previously, we seek stability and this is a good thing. Stability helps us on a psychological and an emotional level in our everyday lives. And that's why in the questions I ask, what's one new belief I would need to adopt to initiate this kind of identity change? And I know there's a lot of talk about ego dissolution these days, as if it's like the holy grail of psychedelic experience, like what we're trying to go after and achieve. And I personally disagree with that narrative. Experiencing ego dissolution is not to be taken lightly, and it's not always necessarily a good thing. It can be very destabilizing and super challenging and difficult to integrate because experiencing ego dissolution can be very disorienting on the other side of that experience. And that's why I highly recommend making sure you have a very solid support system. Community is a crucial aspect of the healing process, especially with psychedelics. So peer-to-peer integration support can be super helpful or get the support of a loved one, a therapist, a psychedelic guide or practitioner if you need it, because integration isn't always sunshine and rainbows. And you also don't have to take a hero's dose. You can work with this eight question process within a microdosing practice. And I also think that mini dosing is going to become a very big trend in the space in the future and the years to come, combining techniques like what I'm describing with smaller amounts. But at the end of the day, you do you. Please use good judgment and listen to your intuition. 
All right, friends, I know we covered quite a lot in this episode, but just to briefly summarize, what the psychedelic research points to is that post-psychedelic journey, we have access to these windows of heightened mental flexibility where we're a little bit more malleable, and we can learn to consciously leverage these windows of time to implement self-inquiry and processes like this eight-question process that I just shared with you to consciously shape and mold our models of reality, primarily our model of self, our sense of self-identity, and the story we tell ourselves about who we are in this world. And as James Clear says, identity change is the North Star of habit change. Change your story, change your life. And as Brene Brown says, when we deny our stories, they define us. When we own our stories, we get to write a brave new ending. You are the story of your life. And we're going to talk more about visionary mindset in an upcoming episode, but I'll just say for now that going through this process as a tool for integration and asking yourself these specific questions is a powerful visionary practice that aligns mind, body, and heart. As I like to remind people, the power to create your life starts in your mind led by a change of heart. And your heart is your internal compass. What direction is your internal compass pointing towards? How intentional are you about influencing the future direction of your life? All right, friends, I hope this was helpful and informative. And if you did find this episode beneficial and you know other people who might benefit from listening to this episode as well, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with them and share it with your medicine community. I would also so appreciate it if you feel inspired and uplifted by this content to please take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you leave me a review and you want to send me a DM on Instagram at D, I would be more than happy to share your review with my audience in my Instagram stories and tag you in that post. I'll be leaving this episode off with one of my all-time favorite songs. I was obsessed with this song in 2021, and it's still a favorite. It's called Cellular Upgrade by Equanimous, Activation, and We Saw Lions. And you can find a link to more of their music on this solo episode page at lauradawn.co forward slash 48, where you can also access the two free PDFs as well as all of the resources mentioned throughout this episode. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. The light and love of divine healing floods into you now. Harmony and wholeness now becomes you.
restoring, recalibrating, and activating every cell within your being. And so it is. 